0: or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this episode, FNC reporter Brian Johnson talks to Steve Nelson WSB's new Director of Water and Wastewater. Nelson is a 30-year veteran of water and wastewater infrastructure projects. He also helped write the expert witness report for a natural resource damages case the state of Minnesota brought against 3M, seeking payment for damage caused by the company's disposal of chemicals in the East Metro. In 2018, the parties entered into an agreement that required 3M to pay $850 million. Nelson talks about his new role at WSB and the outlook for the water and wastewater sector.
1: All right. Well, I'm pleased to be joined by Steve Nelson, who was recently promoted to Director of Water and Wastewater at WSB, headquartered right here in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Um, In his new role, Steve will lead and grow the firm's water-slash-wastewater team, support business development development and lead the firm's biological filtration and water-wastewater innovation efforts. Um, Steve joined WSB last year as a senior project manager and has uh, worked to uh, elevate the firm's water-wastewater services throughout Minnesota. Um, And and, I should mention that you also have 30 years of water and wastewater industry experience. So, um, Steve, thank you for uh, checking in. And uh, how are you doing today?
2: I'm doing wonderfully. Thanks for looking. Looking forward to chatting and um, answering your questions. So appreciate this.
1: Yeah. So um, thank you. Uh, and first off, I guess just uh, how long have you been in this uh, new role with uh, WSB? Uh, it's
2: pretty recent. A uh, couple of weeks, essentially at this point.
1: Okay. And I, I gave a brief introduction there, but can you talk a little bit more about? Um, some of your duties in your new role and uh, what you'll be trying to accomplish? Yeah, so in my uh, role as
2: director of water-wastewater uh, at WSB, I'll be helping, um, you know, leading and growing the firm's water-wastewater team by uh, supporting business development. Uh, I've always enjoyed, um, you know, collaborating with the peers in the industry and serving our clients, uh, leading. Biological filtration efforts, which has been my passion for years, uh, continuing to help communities reduce PFAS contamination and uh, promoting uh, innovative water wastewater solutions.
1: Okay. And so, um, and I guess just to back up a little bit, can you just give us a little more background on WSB as a firm? I know, of course, they do a lot of water wastewater work, a lot of work in the transportation side. Um, can you just give us a brief little um, summary of uh, WSB? Absolutely. So WSB
2: is a uh, uh, design and consulting firm specializing in engineering, uh, community planning, environmental services, and construction services. You know, began regionally and have um, expanding um, from there. Uh, our staff, you know, works together with people. Um, Across uh, multiple, help people engage. I guess on communities, uh, engage with transportation, the uh, infrastructure, energy, and their environment. And okay. um, mm-hmm. that opera services. I I guess it's uh, thirty complementary areas that are you know help integrate again planning, design, implementation, and also it's becoming more um, key. You know with the moving towards smart cities, but you know monitoring. Um, maintaining how your infrastructure is going, so you can plan renovations and replacement. Sometimes it's referred to as asset management.
1: Okay. And are, are there any particular projects you're working on that you could mention, or uh, any specific initiatives? Well, we're continuing um,
2: to help cities with, you know, assess and address and remove PFAS contamination. Um, just as recently as this, one day I was at a council workshop, and we can talk more about that, that later, but that's one one area. But also a big, as I mentioned, a passion of my been is biological filtration. Um, I've done a lot of like kind of roll up your sleeves type work where you climb into filters, and it also had some expertise in corrosion control, and that helped led to the discovery that a lot of these filters historically have been seen having, you know, chemical Physical mechanisms for constituent um, removal, like iron and manganese, but there's almost always biology active as well. So that has been happening outstate through my career, maybe starting you know as many as 20 years ago, but just recently moving into the metro. And I think we currently have biological pilot studies going in. I don't know if I can mention specific cities, but um, mm-hmm. for. Four and, and probably six get in line for that are either have had and are now implementing, to are currently piloting. We are piloting enough that we have people in line, and these are large, you know, seventy thousand population, level communities. So that's a real uh, exciting development uh, where communities were given the option. For a while, it was seen that uh the metro is not ready for this to use you know microbes to help treat the water, but. Um, WSB kind of forged ahead and stepped up and said, well, let's let the communities decide. We've always been working great outstate and teaming, you know, where there's industry needed in a city like Missouri, Minnesota um, to meet industrial tobacco where they double the capacity of the plant. They don't have to add uh, chemicals up like chlorine or permanganate, which is always concerns about all those, what those interactions will do to cause, uh, you know, maybe byproducts that may not be as healthy as we'd like them to be. So give the give communities and give the natural the opportunity to decide if they're willing to kind of harness nature to greatly reduce you know, treatment costs, but also have less potential for byproducts by adding less chemicals, working with nature um, versus kind of fighting what wants to happen naturally in the filters. So that, okay. those are some of the, the key things. I'd say the PFAS contamination trust and also the biological filtration is really kind of the big, uh, there's a lot of momentum there.
1: Okay. And just to back up a little bit, when we talk about PFAS, that's basically a human-made chemical that doesn't get along well with the environment. Is that, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, PFAS is, um, the ones regulated right now are like six man-made. The easiest term to remember is like forever chemicals. Mm -hmm. PFAS is the, the acronym that's, you know, PER and POLY. Floral elical substances. Um, a lot of them were associated with having coatings that are slick, like Scotch Guard or coatings on pizza boxes, um, but all the way to firefighting uh, foams. And the reason they were used for that is they're not destroyed by heat and they're kind of slick and slippery, but that also makes them um, very uh, much kind of that forever chemical they get through mm-hmm. the body. You no, know, they can't. If they're in a fire, they're still going to exist. And they also allow them to kind of slide around in the. In the in the environment so um,
3: a lot of that started in the metro here with
2: minnesota attorney general and at uh basically helped write the expert witness report for the natural resource damages case it was essentially 13 communities in east metro about a you know 900 million dollar settlement um, so that was kind of concentrated there and they're treating those waters down to zero, down to non-detect, because that's how the case was settled. That the natural resource didn't have this in it. We don't accept any in it. So check, you know, test down it. If it's detectable, need to treat more. So they'll have two filters in a row. Now it's becoming more and more. We're seeing elsewhere, you know, in the West Metro, in the Northwest or in the South Metro, pretty much all over. More and more people are testing, Department of Health is starting to test. And they assume it'll require testing. And it's showing up um, closer to the new levels that uh, you know the EPA announced you know, um recently, you know, which are very close to back, basically the detection levels.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So that is mm-hmm. a concern like that council meeting in the North Metro is at council workshop meeting on Monday. These cities are starting to try and get ahead of it and they're testing themselves and realizing hey, we need to actively plan everything we do in the future for the potential to possibly have to treat PBOS and maybe to a level where we might have to treat the majority of the water. So, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and that can affect prior plans for, you know, space allocated for a treatment plant to wells that were just recently drilled to some cities, maybe just built a treatment plant so it's uh it's an evolving concern for our department of health it's also encouraging people to and, and we are to you know with your website and, and communications and WSB of that as well of course just kind of develop a campaign an educational campaign so residents are aware and know that maybe some of the plans they had stop a plant or a different type of plant or a campus a public works campus expansion there needs to be room and allocate, allocated for a potential future combustion. And mm-hmm. what are cities doing with the wells where that has been but maybe does not yet exceed currently.
1: the current hmm So the concern is the impact of these chemicals on drinking water, essentially, <laughs> right? Yes, it's it, it's
2: um becoming more so because they are a, a forever chemical, some of the treatments that would sometimes be acceptable like reverse osmosis would just concentrate the pfos on the stream that you're sending to the sewer for example and kind of the phrase i've come up with that to help explain to people is you know the mpca and others really want to avoid kind of kicking the can down pfos road in other words let's not just give it to the wastewater but let's not just you know Land applied if it is up in residuals. Let's try and take care of it. So really, the preferred—it's kind of leading towards some of the best available treatment technologies that are adopted and probably have the least liability associated with them. So it's a—it's a concern that we just don't want to keep spreading the forever chemicals around. We want to try and capture them in a way where it can be brought to like, once ever captured, can be brought to a facility and incinerated and destroyed.
1: Okay, so when we talk about these forever chemicals, and you touched on this a little bit, but what do you see is what what is the impact on um, I guess design and construction of these plants and and do you see um, do you see more uh, work coming down the road in this area as we address these issues? Uh,
2: could you rephrase that or repeat that question? I'm not sure I.
1: Well, that. just looking at in terms of as we, we become more aware and more aggressive in treating these chemicals, do you, does that mean we'll be building more of these plants or designing them in a different way or expanding more? I, what What is the impact on uh, from a design and construction perspective?
2: Yes. Yeah, so, again, the, the East Metro communities were to have the, the settlement you know, through the Attorney General uh, Natural Resource Damages settlement those are treated to zero. So most of those, even if they were considering millennial alternative sources, it seems like all those are going to treatment with granular activated carbon. And that's, you think of them like maybe if you picture like an asteroid with a bunch of caves in it, if we're really to zoom in on it, it's the ropes that would be the PFAS are kind of end up in those little cave spots. And then that, all those mini asteroids, which are the size of a piece of sand are then sent to uh a facility, and they incinerate it, remove the deposit, and replace what was in that canister. Essentially, so that is really what the primary mode is in the East Metro, because that's what the settlement was based on: treatment to restore natural resources, not a Now, elsewhere, there is room for things like blending. So, if you have a water, a well that exceeds a little next to a and you have other wells that don't, you can bring them together all of the true <clears throat> Blend them, and as long as what goes into the system on a quarterly average doesn't exceed the regulated levels, you're fine. You could also go to things like alternative sources. There's an aquifer that's reserved, a well Simon aquifer that the DNR DNRs really put a moratorium on, trying to stay for the future, you know, very much older water. No promises there, but those are the types of things that also be looked at. And maybe cities will allow, the DNR would allow appropriations of that, cleaner water too, or other alternative sources. Um, and, um, but it's really up to the cities you know, to decide how they want to meet. um I know a lot of cities might tend towards wanting to treat it all, but it's very expensive on a life cycle cost because you have to replace all that media um, paper to be all the way incinerated on the average like on the east metro is like every one to two years so that's an ongoing o and expense that really adds up faster than you might think it would it's not just the initial capital to build a plant but it's continuing to have to pay to get that forever chemical kind of burned out of your media and get Yeah, media mm-hmm.
1: it, what, what's the uh Outlook for funding for these types of projects I know that there's through deed I believe there's some um, funding available to cities and towns that i mean these are pretty big projects i I assume and uh, if you're a small town you can't afford to just do that on your own um what 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 do you what is the outlook for funding these projects and and how does that compare with the uh the needs out there um
2: I'd expect that this is going to continue to evolve. But, you know, for example, the $900 million settlement mentioned in East Metro, you know, there's like 13 communities there. One of the plants that we built the removal for is like 3 million gallons a day. That's like a 7 million. Um, There's another facility, a larger community, probably the largest community there. It's looking like it's more $150 million. So, those we're talking some really big numbers, but again, that's for life cycle. Those costs, I give you, are actually initial costs, but plus you have the life cycle costs you start to see, which are probably going to be more than twice that in over like Um years. The, there is some bills they call it for like uh, emerging contaminants funding. Mm-hmm. So, if there's uh, potential funding available through a bipartisan infrastructure law uh, for emerging contaminants that has $5 billion, Um for state low interest loans. But five billion, if you think over you know, 50 states is and some of the numbers I just mentioned is not doesn't seem like a lot of money to me. Um and there's also four billion dollars in grants bill for disadvantaged communities. So I don't know exactly what that is going to quantify that, but it'd probably be things like you know, low income um, ratio ratio the cost of the project to the average income, those types of metrics that are typically used. Mm. Um, but I, I just, it would seem like, you know, if if everyone wants to treat, there, it seems like there's going to be a demand for more, you know, maybe crushingly, crushingly directed spending or some other problem. Right now, yeah, that I see a kind of a disparity there between what the potential need could be and the costs we're talking about, especially for renewable.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's why communities. Will have the ability to maybe look at blending or go to this alternative source for other options versus the very expensive life cycle cost of building the, the plant and then you know, replacing it every 32 years.
1: Yeah. And so I understand you've been in the water and wastewater industry for 30 years. Um, how, is, how has that industry evolved since you started out uh, all those years ago? Is it, Just more focus on um, certain types of, uh, you know, dealing with these human human forever chemicals as you call them, or just more awareness of of that being out there. You know, what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen?
2: I I actually started
1: my career in a a national firm in Kansas City in
2: 1989. So, Hmm. yeah, there I was working with very kind of spearhead group of all. PhDs and master's degree kind of on just the process of helping with the sick you know, the safe drinking water act is just getting going and a lot of that. So there was a lot of um I'd say the more standard constituents of and you know contaminants of concern at that point. Now it's this whole emerging contaminants of concern, and a lot of that's driven by just the technology to be able to measure down to lower and lower and lower levels. You know, the POS mm. example, you know, is one of them. Uh, just recently, EPA came out and said they're going to stack at four parts per trillion. So, I mean, that's like a, a little tiny beaker of PFAS, like 50 mils, would be in like 30 billion gallons. Just to be honest, so if you look at like a Brooklyn Park water tower, mm. it would be like 3,000. So, it's just very, very minute. And then they're setting the standard at that because the detection only at two parts per trillion. So, that yeah. makes it ask where will that go if they can measure lower? And we're currently only regulating six of those PFAS constituents, and there's like potentially like 3,000 combinations of PFAS constituents. So that's one of the things, is the science of being able to measure things, and then how to, you know, how do you have an to say what the risk is, and then where, where is that going to lead us? So I, you know, I don't think we would have had that technology um, back in the to measure down to that lower level, level. I think mm-hmm. that's a good thing for um human health. Um but it's definitely a change I've seen. And other things some of the things that are along those emerging contaminants are things that are like don't get removed in a wastewater plant or things that we didn't think about. Some of them are called like endocrine disruptors. So hormones and things that you know people might be taking or just also byproducts of people, you know, animals, but those can, you know, like both hormones, endocrine disruptors, things like that. So those are some of the other emerging. So those are mm-hmm. things that would have drug technology you
1: know, back in 1990. Yeah. Interesting. How did you get into this line of work or what, what attracted you to, um, I guess, engineering in general or specifically to working on uh, water and wastewater? Projects
2: <laughs> as a as a kid growing up in uh, Maple Grove, I worked at a, a private pool for a townhouse association and as mm. to with West and was uh, watched the gate. kind of had three jobs at once. but I really got interested in just water in general, just maintaining the pools, back washing the pumps, keeping that pool crystal clear. Well uh, just really kind of enjoyed that. So that and then the joy of just being outside. So that led me towards civil engineering and then eventually to you
1: know,
2: get a master's in
1: environmental health and hmm. wow. I imagine there's a lot of demand out there for people with your type of expertise. Just as uh, it seems like there's a shortage of pretty much every. <laughs> uh, well, Brian,
2: if you're willing to start taking classes, we're <laughs> looking. For it
1: for-
2: well, Take your uh, application for sure. So <laughs> yeah, I know there's a definite demand out there. And, uh, and it does seem to be, um, maybe there's less people that got into engineering or it might be just, just, so, like I said, some of this momentum. Firms are just seeing that there could potentially be a lot of work to adjust some of these, these uh, people's containers.
1: Yeah. Well, my kids might take you up on um, All right. going down that career path. So... Um, Talking about any baseball tonight, though. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, um, but hey, Steve is really nice chatting with you. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about before I let you go? It's been a it's been a fun conversation.
2: Uh, yeah, I'm just just the way you asked. Well, I'm just looking forward to you know taking this new leadership role on, and um, I believe in our first commitment to what's next in infrastructure and uh, you know, environmentally friendly, sustainable solutions. Um and that's one of the things that I'm proud to work with obviously because there's other firms that um maybe haven't well have not picked up the ball, for example like harvest and biological treatment. Um and so that's that's something I'm that really excited about. Well
1: great. Well well Steve, good luck to you in your new role and uh thanks again for your time. Uh, really appreciate it.
2: Yep. Thanks, Brian. Have a great night.
1: You morning. too. Thank you. Take care.